Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. I'd like to begin this podcast by recognizing the traditional owners of the land in which it is recorded. I pay respect to their elders past, present, and those emerging. I just, I just finished your book as well, Will. I loved it. It was so great. I finished it. Finished it last night like a proper interviewer. <laughs> hey there, everyone. Welcome to Nature or Nurture, the podcast where I ask people key milestones on what made them who they are today. And I'm really lucky today to be joined by the wonderful Will Anderson. Will, welcome. Uh, thank you, Sam. I appreciate you having me on the podcast. So I thought it was about uh, nature walks. And so I've prepared a lot of material about like my favorite hikes, uh, my favorite yep. bushwalks. I've come completely unprepared for what the topic of this conversation will actually be. That's why you're outside walking in the wilderness now. I was wondering for a second there <laughs> while you're on a bushwalk. I mean, I thought it was weird that you'd asked me to do it, and I've actually, weirdly enough, ended up in the exact same forest that Ivan Milat murdered all those people in. So there might be a little bit of a dark tinge to what we're going to do here today. <laughs> but that's okay. It just goes where it goes. Now, Will, I uh, start the podcast by asking the question, what do you think had greater influence on you, nature or nurture? Yeah, it's an interesting question, Sam. How would you define nature versus nurture? I know that, like... There's a kind of common preconception or understanding of what that means. But when it's your podcast, like how do you define those two things? And what do you mean when you say how has one or the other like defined me more? Well, so nature, I always think, so you go straight away, you go, well, that's that's genetics. That's that's who you are, who you are at birth. Nurture the people that influenced you from birth really is the way I define it. And the, the question is, is it, I, I think it seems like a simple question when you put it there, but it's a really, really complicated one. And everyone so far has said it's a little bit of both, really. it's You can't really <laughs> say that one or the other has really defined you. So I don't mean to give you the answer there, Will, but it's it's kind of whatever you feel like had the had the greatest influence on yeah. you. It, it, well, I, th- I think, that there, that's, I think that's true. Up? Okay, so here's what I would say. I think that absolutely there's no way it could be one or the other. Mm. Like I, it's got to be both. Because there are parts of me that are very separate to the way that I was raised, you know, things that I believe or who I am as a person that just I can't that I can't explain from the way that I was raised or in the environment in which I was raised. And yet so yeah. much of who I am also comes from those things. So I often one thing I say about families in particular is that um, I think if you have a good family, you think that it's less important. You think, oh, no, 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 a lot of this is me or intrinsically who I am. And it's only when you meet someone who's had a terrible family that you go, oh, no, 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 no. <laughs> like it's, it's, <laughs> it's so big and so defining in who you are for the rest of your life. So it's interesting yeah. to me that I think that if, you know, um, your nurture has been indeed nurturing, 
then I think that yep. you sometimes underappreciate the role that it has played in shaping you. Whereas if your nurture has been absent or destructive or vindictive or just unhealthy in some ways, then the imprints yep. of it in your life are much more easy to identify. And so yeah. because my nurture was nurturing, like, you know, that's what I look at my family as being like, you know, the way that I was raised, I do, you know, in retrospect, look back and consider myself to be raised in an incredibly, you know, supportive environment. And the funny thing about that is that my parents aren't the sort of parents that I would have ever identified as being particularly supportive because they're not like overly, overly cheerleady, you know, in that aspect. Like, you know. Yeah, right. Like no one else would, they were just the right amount of supportive. Like it's often summed up with what my parents said about, um, you yeah, know, raising a kid. This was like what my mum said. And I always think, I say this to people and I think this perfectly described the way I was raised, which was they, their attitude was always, you've got to love your kids enough that they don't want to leave home until they've finished school, but not so much that they don't want to leave home after they've finished school. And I, I feel like they perfectly nailed that. Absolutely. Never a true word spoken, yeah. really. If you want to <laughs> hang around all your life. I remember moving up to the city for the first time, Will, and, and people my age still living at home in the city. And it was like, it, in my head just exploded because all I wanted to do was leave home and go and explore and, and, and go on an adventure and see all of Melbourne. What what was it like for you when you first moved to Melbourne? Yeah, well, I didn't... Did you go at 18? So I didn't move to Melbourne. I moved to Canberra. So I was living in country Victoria. And again, like it wasn't like my parents... It wasn't like I wanted to leave home because home was a situation where I was like, I don't want to be here anymore. I wanted to leave home because it had always just been made aware to me that that was what we were working towards, you know, (laughs) like that my parents were trying to prepare me in a way. It wasn't even really ever a decision. It was just, you know, once you finish high school, you will either go and get a job or you will go on to further education. They were just the way that my life had been shaped and what we had been working towards. So, um, I never really even thought that there was any other option. It was never really presented yeah, to me that there was any other option. So It was 18 years of getting you closer to the door. Exactly. Just closer, closer, closer. You know, just suddenly putting all those things in place that meant that you were ready to go out on your own, you know. Like, I mean, some of those were as simple as getting your driver's licence. I mean, so for me, I was one of those kids that was 17 all of year 12, so my birthday's in January, January the 31st. And uh, um, uh, so I had not only year 12 being 17, but all of that summer after year 12 being 17 still, which is <laughs> so much fun. Uh, <laughs> no, no way you'd want to be able to legally drink in that summer. Uh, <laughs> so uh, I think I went away to university maybe – February three journalism Fe- yeah to do journalism Canberra and that would have been February three February four February five something like that I reckon I moved so I remember either the day of my birthday or the day after my birthday being booked in to um, get my driver's license and so maybe it was even my birthday did I do it on my day? I, anyway it was it was within days. It probably wasn't the yep. day after because we ended up having a party. So the day after would have been a terrible <laughs> idea. But <laughs> uh, but it was within days of my birthday. I remember that. And then within days of that, I had uh, loaded up my Holden Barina, 
Beep Beep Marina, my secondhand Holden Marina. So I guess this will give you an indication into how my parents looked at it. Um, when I was working at, uh, at high school, my high school job was working on the farm, but my parents always paid me to work on the farm. It wasn't free child labor. It was, you got paid, you know, a reasonable amount of money. It all went into a bank account. And the expectation was that you would then use that money to buy yourself a car at, you know, so that you would be able to then go away to university. So how hard you worked yeah. and how much you saved basically depended on the, uh, you know, type of car that you were then willing you know, willing and able to buy. So I think mine was an $8,000 secondhand Holden Barina was what I managed <laughs> to, to be able to afford. And uh, I loaded up that. Uh, so, and again, this is another indication. I remember the morning of my driver's test sale in Victoria is notoriously apparently one of the hardest places to get your license for some reason. Really? Now, I don't know if that is actually true or whether that was just one of those rumours that went around country towns that, you know, it was the hardest place. But I remember on the morning that – so I think I drove over with mum in the car, you know, so she was in the car with me. I was on my learners and I drove over in my car and dad drove over in his car and mum and dad got into their car and they drove home, which was 30 kilometres away, and they said, drive home by yourself when you've got your licence. There was no <laughs> there was no backup plan that maybe... No chance for fail. <laughs> that I, would have, I don't know what I was meant to do if I had <laughs> failed my driver's licence test. And then a few days after that, I loaded up that car with whatever could fit in a Barina and uh, drove up to Canberra to go to university. You know, Will, it's so funny that you say this because I did exactly the same thing that you did. I drove to Canberra. The first place I went when I finished high school, I went to Canberra straight away because I got into a thing for filmmaking in mm. Canberra and I, I drove right to Canberra. But I remember my parallel park when they tried to get you to a parallel park for the first time. Usually you would go against another car, but it was so quiet in Leangatha where I did my <laughs> where I did my test that there were no other cars to do it with. So the I was backing in and then the teacher just went, that looks about right. <laughs> <laughs> Big tick for me. <laughs> what was it like having that independence to drive to drive to Canberra by yourself to go and to go and study? Um, I don't. It's funny. Like it never really felt like that big a deal. I've got to say. Yeah, that's my memory of it. Like, I mean, I must have been terrified. Like, and you know, like at least the, the very least nervous. I mean, I do think that mum came up pretty early because, like, the truth was that not much could fit in the Brina. So, <laughs> so I, I think I think mum had to come up with a, a tarago full of other stuff to be able to to set up set up my life. But um, so I did have some help settling in, um, yep. and. I guess I was living on campus, so I, like you know, there was some infrastructure in place, you know, to help you settle in. You know, that was yeah. I remember on the first night, in fact, of going out and about and having a drink at university. That I remember drinking way too much, as as you know, as is the thing that people do in those situations, and <laughs> yeah. falling over into a bush on campus, like. And and I can't remember much after that, but I do remember that I woke up safely, fully clothed in my bed at the university. So somebody had helped me get back there and get back into bed. So it felt like, you know, a pretty safe environment. It felt like there was an infrastructure in place to, you know, 
that they knew that these sort of that, you know kids were away on their first adventures and they were likely to misjudge their capabilities and that you know people yeah. were looking out for them. So I didn't have a sense, you know, at that stage that there was, you know, any particular I don't know danger or you know something that I should be absolutely terrified about. I I, I was probably pretty optimistic about you know having an opportunity to see what my life would look like when. I was not – I mean, I'd grown up in a, you know, a very small community where my my father and mother, you know, have lived in that community for a very long time and their parents live in that community. And, you know, so we're well a well-known family in, in that community. And, I mean, lots of people are. If you've been there for a long time, everybody knows each other. But, you know, dad had been – my grandfather had been, you know, a, a, the local mayor and, you know, my – Dad, you know, had been sort of captain, coach of the local cricket and football club. So they were well-known people around the community and, you know, well-respected people around the community. And so you always, in a sense, grow up in the shadow of that. And, of course, coming from a dairy farming family, there is a bit of a tradition that, you know, kids of farmers become farmers. So, you know, there was also that there was this idea of well you know I'm I'm going to go off on my own now and for me Canberra part of the reason I'd been accepted into university in Melbourne and mm-hmm. and that had really been my plan very much up until the last moment and Canberra had really been my backup university you know you do that thing of going if I don't get into the you know the one I want to get into this is my my backup choice and and then I realized that I was looking at a life where not that much was going to change. I had friend, you know, plans to move in to a house with a whole bunch of high school friends, people who I'm still friends with now, like people who I love. It wasn't about them, but it was just about that idea of, <clears throat> oh, do I really want first year of university to be more like year 13 of high school? I'm not sure that I do, particularly as, you know, I had just spent the last six plus years, you know, yeah, living my life, you know, with these friends and in the pockets of these friends. There was part of me, I think, that wanted the opportunity to go out on my own and see what that looked like, Mm -hmm. see what sort of person I would be if I wasn't shaped by the environment of my friends and the environment Mm -hmm. of my family. So I guess this, you know, this is where it gets to what you're talking about, this idea of nature versus nurture. You know, I, Mm -hmm. I wanted to see... I'd, I'd had two very nurturing environments in some ways. You know, my friends had been great friends. I have, you know, very, yeah, I, I was very lucky. I had a, a great group of friends and my family had been a great family. And I guess there had been an excellent community around that as well. So I wanted to see who I was external to, you know, the nurturing that I'd had up until that point. And if I went out on my own, what did that look like? So I think at that point, the, the decision was made through that lens, I definitely decided that I needed to find out who I was without all the external factors around me that defined who I was. Growing up on a farm as well, like you grew up on Anderson Road, and was, was it kind of expected that you would, for your parents, did they kind of expect you to want to work in a similar industry? Because where, where did journalism come from? Was that just a left a field thing for your parents? Why did you decide to do journalism uh uh, okay so the first thing is i over exaggerate for comic effect 
um, yeah. how much my parents might have expected that I would be a farmer. I think they're very smart people, and from a, from a reasonably well from a reasonably young age, they were quite aware that that was not going to be the path to me. And you know, in a general sense, they've always been super supportive. It's just not fun. Yep. It's just not as fun or funny to you know yeah. paint paint that picture. But the truth is that. My dad didn't become a dairy farmer because he felt obliged to. My dad became a dairy farmer because he wanted to. It's his lifelong Mm. passion. The reason that he, you know, well into his late 70s is still working on the farm isn't because there's an obligation for him to do so. There isn't. You know, he could easily retire now and and not work on the farm. He loves it. It's what he's always done. And and he, I believe, you know, and mum as well, absolutely, just wanted for their kids, for them to be able to, have you know something that they got up every day and really wanted to do so I, I don't think they really cared what that was they just cared that we found something that fulfilled that purpose and you know it didn't matter if it was a job or a family or a passion or a pursuit or whatever it was but they wanted something that we could you know dedicate our, ourselves to and that would fulfill us so um you know they never they were never a family that dissuaded me from when I suddenly, you know, was coming home going, I want to, you know, play high school theatre sports or I want to write school plays or I want to do, you know, or, or I want to play AFL football for a career, you know, all these things, you know, dreams and ambitions that I did have as a kid. I was never discouraged from any of those things. There was never any sense of, no, 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 your destiny, young man, is to one day, you know, milk cows alongside your father. There was none of that. There was no pressure at all in that regard. Um you know, I, I joke about it that I, you know, when I told them, yeah, mum, dad, I can't be a farmer, they were like, yeah, yep, yeah, no, this is good for both of us. But that's kind of true. They knew that. They yeah. knew it wasn't going to be good for them either. So um, uh, journalism was just it's so weird when you look back on these things because I was a kid, like you said, from like a dairy, the place I'm from has 250 people. The place I went to primary school has 1,200 people and the place I went to high school has 12,000 people. They're tiny, tiny – like more people come and see me each year at the Melbourne Comedy Festival than live in the biggest place that I went to school when I was growing up, you know. Like yeah. it's quite a small place, a quite a small community of people. And um, I the, the joke – the line I use often is, you know, the first person I met in show business was me. But there's – that's not entirely true but there is a truth to it which is that – there was no sense that doing what I do for a living was even a possibility that that's something that you could do for a living. These days, you know, you could actually say, I want to be a comedian and you could point to the careers of, you know, so many comedians, but not just comedians. You could say, I want to work in comedy and you could be a producer, a podcaster, a publicist, uh, you know, there are, um, you know, so many other jobs that are part of the comedy industry and you could point to the comedy industry and say, look at all these successful people who like pay their bills, pay their mortgages, raise their families on proceeds of the comedy industry. But when I started, there was only really half a dozen, a dozen comedians in Australia probably who were making a full-time living from doing comedy. So there just wasn't something that you could point to and it certainly wasn't something that a kid from a dairy farm thought that he could do. And yet, despite that, I thought that I could do it. That's the weird thing. Like, I don't know yeah. what that is. I don't know where that ridiculous sense 
that maybe it was something that I could do came from? Like, because it's delusional, really, right? Like, what business do I have, this kid from the country, thinking that I could be like a popular and successful comedian? It's only that I have become a popular and successful comedian (laughs) that has made that seem less ridiculous. But it was ridiculous. And even certainly all my teachers thought it was ridiculous. And certainly all the guidance I would get from people thought it was ridiculous. I remember um, Peter McGoran, who was the National Party senator uh, at the time for Gippsland, and he was um, quite often a visitor to my house because he would be coming – my dad would be involved in local farmers, the National Farmers Federation or water boards and these sort of things. And so Peter McGoran, the politician, would come to the house to, you know, have these meetings with these – you know, farmers' representatives to talk about, you know, national party issues. And, and you know, I remember him one day, you know, sitting me down and saying, I know you're interested in, like, you know, arts and acting and show business and these sort of things. Um, but, you know, they're not very reliable jobs. What I recommend is that you pursue a law degree. I was, you know, doing well at school and, and you know, particularly at sort of, like, less so at maths and science and more so at like English and public speaking and the sort of things that, you know, you you end up with a law degree. So he, you know, I remember that. And I I imagine that had been partly, I guess, instigated by my parents or at least he had heard my parents talk about like what my interests were and he had decided to have that conversation with me. So I do remember people saying, pushing me away from it. I did apply because then you don't know – so I applied to uh, VCA in Victoria okay. um, yep. to do directing because that to me felt like I'd, I'd written and directed a couple of school plays that had been really successful. And um, so I thought, mate, you know, in my head I was like, well, directing's a job. You know, that, yep. like I was in my head, I was like, here's the thing that I can be creative but I also can go, this is a job. This is a job that I see. I could Maybe I could go and I could be a director. They – did not share my vision for that. <laughs> they said, no, thank you. See you later, alligator. <laughs> uh, and then so other, so then I was looking at, well, what, what are other things that I could do with the skill set that I had? I was, you know, a good writer, but I didn't really have a passion for, uh, you know, creative writing in the traditional sense. Like, you know, my... Even my writing style, and and you know you've you've read my book. It it's it it has a like I mean even my stand up writing style, it's not flowery. Like I'm not a person yep. who's big into descriptions or like you know I'm like I'll give you enough and then it was always my least favorite part of a book when I was growing up was when they spent like three paragraphs describing someone and I was like just. Tell me he's an old wizard. I've got an imagination. I can make up what he looks like. I don't need your bullshit. Don't talk about his hat. Yeah, and his blah, beard blah, and his blah. Coat. It's not helping. You're making it worse. <laughs> this is boring, right? And and journalism felt like that was this that style of writing, you know? Like it was to the point, telling a story, getting it across in as fewer words as possible, which was always it's always been my favorite style of communication. I didn't like this is something I've thought about a lot more, obviously, as I've pursued a career in this rather than something that I had fully formed as an idea when I was a kid. But I knew that the sort of writing that always appealed to me was writing that could take a complex issue and try to communicate it in an easy to understand way, not the opposite, not somebody who's writing 
was so dense and flowery that it obscured the story that was trying to be told. I always liked it the opposite, which was how can someone explain something really complex in a really fun and easy way? I mean, I've spoken endlessly about the effect that Andrew Denton's The Money or the Gun had on me when I was like 13 or 14. But the thing that I loved about that the most was that Andrew was taking these incredibly complex ideas and then presenting them in a way that was not only easy to understand but was hilariously funny. And I'd always loved that style of communication. And that felt like, well, the job, the job that I could identify, which was a real job that felt like you could best use those skills in was, was journalism. And I did have an interest in politics. I had always had an interest in power. And I think probably a natural, I don't know where this necessarily comes from, but I have always had an, there's always been a strong anti authoritarian streak that has run through me you know I was that kid who was a nightmare to teachers and and you know authority figures and particularly what I consider to be unearned authority you know like um unearned power and it's always been a pretty consistent theme through my work and through my life is like you know there's still a real sense of like the thing that I find most pathetic in society is you know unearned power and like what most worthy of mocking is unearned power and so politics seemed to be political journalism seemed to be the right place for that, and 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 um, Canberra seemed to be the right place to pursue a career in political journalism. Clearly, <laughs> the whole time you were there, you know, you're meeting lots of people, you're studying to be a journalist. When did that kind of change for you? When you decided that you didn't want to do that anymore? When I was finished. <laughs> so you went all the way through and then decided that you wanted to do something else, like going to get a job, going to do things. Did you always have comedy on your mind? Uh, it's so weird because, no. Like, yep. in a way, I put it away. Like, I'm, you know, university is a place where you can pursue things like comedy. But yeah. I had decided to be a journalist. And so I can be a little single-minded around these sort of things. And, mm-hmm. you know, I think that in my career particularly, it's always been job-focused. I was having this conversation the other day with somebody about how the Gruen me is very different to the philosophy me, which is different to the Tofop me, which is different to the stand-up me. I mean, they're all me, but they're, you know, the job I do on QE is very different to the job I do on Gruen, right? Yeah. Off, what I tend to bring to things is a focus of what does this job need? What do I need to bring to this job to do this job well, rather than trying to bring all of me to situations? And so when I decided that I was going to be a journalist, I I actually put comedy away and I just decided, okay, I'm just going to be a fan of comedy. So at three years at university where you have access to, you know, universe, it's often the story is that that's where people discovered comedy. You know, they were part of, mm. you know, reviews or you know, high university stand-up competitions. There was even a regular gig at a place called the uh, Private Bin. It was this, like, absolutely trashy nightclub, but they used to do a Wednesday night comedy gig at the Private Bin in Canberra. That You know, there was opportunities to try comedy all over the place, but I had just decided that I was going to be a journalist and I was going to be a fan of comedy, and that was going to be fine with me. I certainly didn't put it away as a fan. I loved it. Like, if the Melbourne Roadshow... It wasn't called The Roadshow back then, but they used to do a version of The Roadshow that would come to Canberra. I remember seeing Bill Hicks, uh, you know, on the Canberra Comedy Roadshow. I would go to this private bin gig very regularly. I loved to go and watch comedy, like watch stand-up, but I really remember not once, like ever sitting in that room 
going, oh, I wonder if they have like a sign-up sheet that I can try this myself. I was just yeah. still a fan of it, you know, and, and was consuming a lot of it and very much, you know, watching the Melbourne Com- International Comedy Festival galas and, you know, I was certainly across comedy. I would have been – I was a bit of a comedy nerd before they were, you know – before there was comedy nerds. I probably would have, you know, if it was this day and age, I probably would have a very successful comedy blog, you know. I would have used my journalism (laughs) skills to become a comedy journalist, but that certainly wasn't a thing uh, that existed back then. And it wasn't until I finished university. So I've told this story a million times, so I'll skip over it very quickly. But um, I graduated first in my course. Um, I... um, uh, worked two years in the um, Canberra Press Gallery at the Financial Review while I was studying. Um, so I got to the end of my three years in Canberra with two years work experience in the Canberra Press Gallery, having covered an election, having had front page stories on the Financial Review, having graduated first in my course at university. I had job offers from newspapers and media organisations all over the country. The only one I think that turned me down was until this – and still to this day I still remember this. It was the Adelaide advertiser said no. The Adelaide advertiser was like, uh, no thanks. But I did all the interviews. I talked to everybody. Yeah. And I remember going to talk to my um, uh, boss, Tom Burton, who was this incredible journalist and just a really great man, Tom Burton. And, you know – the person who had invested the most in me, you know, and my career and given me the most opportunity. So the person I was really, by saying that I wasn't enthused by this, going to let down the most. And I had a, a really honest conversation with him was saying, I don't, I don't think I want to do this. You know, I don't, like I've got all these opportunities and offers and I should be excited and happy and ready and I just, I, 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 I don't have the passion for it. And he said, well, clearly you've done very well at this thing that you don't have a passion for. Like imagine if you applied yourself to a thing that you do have a passion for, right? I mean, it was pretty pretty simple, but it's like a pretty, you know, interesting thing to say. And so yeah. I thought about that and I thought, well, what am I passionate about? And the only thing that I could think of was like, when was the last time that I really genuinely was like 100% happy? You know, like like – and again, I apologize if people have heard this story a bunch of times, but it, it, I, they've heard it a bunch of times because it's true, which is that when I was 17 years old, I went to see Billy Connolly with my mum. And, you know, this is what we talk about nature versus nurture, right? This is nurture because my mum knew that I was pursuing something else, but she clearly also knew that there was something in me that had this passion for, you know, at least this interest for this thing. And if she was someone who did not want to support or fan that interest then it would have been very easy for her to not buy me billy Connolly tickets for my 17th birthday and it would have been very easy for her not to drive me three hours to melbourne and three hours home six hours drive in the car to go and see billy Connolly. and i remember sitting in the room that night and that was the night that changed my life forever it took me another four years for it to properly start changing my life forever but i know that's that's your ground zero that's where it all started because I remember sitting in that room that night seeing 3,000 people at Hamer Hall entertained by this man with by nothing more than his ideas. No guitar, no set, no other actors, nothing. Just a man speaking, a man being so good at doing something that we all do for free every day that people were willing to gather together. And the thing that I still remember was 
kids from 14 to adults to 74. You know, people if they met in the foyer would think they have nothing in common, were bonded constantly in common in laughing at these same stories and these same jokes by this brilliant man. And I was like, well, that's it. That's what I am passionate about. I'm passionate about comedy. I'm, I'm going to be a, you know what? I'm going to go to Melbourne because that's, this is what I did know. If you wanted to be a comedian, that it was happening in Melbourne. Back then in particular, it was, that the comedy festival was probably, well, the first time I did the comedy festival, it was six years old. So this has got to be, um, so the comedy festival is probably only three or four years old at this point. But to me, it already seemed like this really big deal. Like, it, you know, if, yeah. And so I knew Melbourne was the place. Melbourne was the place that, you needed to go if you wanted to be a stand-up comedian. So I remember telling my friend Adam Harvey, and uh, Adam Harvey is now uh, Adam and I had been in 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 journalism school together, and he's the son of Peter Harvey, the the very famous Peter Harvey, Peter Harvey Canberra, and uh, uh, he is a brilliant journalist now. Works for Four Corners and has been an ABC correspondent all over the world. Like a really fantastic dude, and and like a really brilliant journalist. And he had been you know one of my close friends at at university and I remember telling him that uh, I was uh, not going to be a journalist and I was going to go to Melbourne and I was going to try to be a comedian and I remember we've spoken about this since and he just says to me every time he goes I just thought it was the stupidest idea of all time because there had been nothing in the previous three years of me knowing you (laughs) that had made me think that that was something that you were interested in or that you had the aptitude for so that's probably an indication that you know during that time it just wasn't it wasn't at all part of my personality look there was times in journalism class I remember writing a a very one of our assignments was to write sort of a, um, a like a first person journalism piece you know like a Hunter S Thompson style um, you know journalism piece and I had gone to the opening of Canberra's first gay nightclub which was a place called Heaven and it was opening night and uh, um, I had written a piece about that that I remember in class everybody had just like like the the lecturer had read the entire piece out because I just had thought it was so good and so funny and and that perhaps was you know and it was I guess in retrospect you know it was it was probably much closer to what my comedic style is you know here's something that happened to me that <clears throat> I can tell the story of but is also about an issue that is like bigger than the story. It's not just a story about something funny, but I can talk about this being a, like the first place a gay nightclub has come and me being, an, you know, a, a cishet guy in the middle of this environment. And like, you know, so I guess in a way that piece probably was a bit of a, you could see a little bit of what my comedic style would become in that. But in the sense of me being a performer, I had not done any of that at university. So it was quite a um, foreign idea to all my friends that it was something that I was going to go and pursue. A lot of people talk about, you know, when you get into comedy that you have to find your voice and you have to find your own comedic style. What was that like for you? I mean, you, you wrote this you wrote this piece. What was it then finding your voice? Was it, was it really hard, do you think, when you first started comedy to find out what you were going to talk about and who you were going to be on stage if you had no experience until that moment? Yes. Yes. I mean, look, I mean, like most people, I just, you know, and I, this is still the case, although I think these days because you can access so much 
more comedy. I mean, again, this is a time where the majority of comedy that I was able to access were the the Bills, Billy Connolly and uh, the other BC that we don't mention anymore, <laughs> the Doctor, the good Doctor Cosby. Uh, <laughs> and then Rodney Rood, um, uh, the Twelfth Man, Kevin Buddy Wilson, Co- yeah. you know, there wasn't – Cole Elliott, you know what I mean? There wasn't like a lot of yeah. – Monty Python, which was fantastic, of course. Um, but then again, then it was just like, you know, us taping the big gig off the tally and learning Jamoan's routines. Like, So at the start, like most bands, you're just doing cover versions of, you know, people that you like. I mean, I remember – and I'm not just cover versions, sometimes like direct rip-offs really. I remember early on I had this like piece that was like, Um, about Greek yogurt and how. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Um, Greek was also another word for anal. And, you know, like the the whole premise was about this idea of it being like anal yoga, whatever. Anyway, it was all based on um, a Tony Martin routine, which was about lifestyle condoms, which were designed to cover your entire lifestyle. And to me, I was like, no, this is completely different. He's talking about lifestyle condoms and I'm talking about Greek yogurt. But I mean, essentially it was like the same joke, just with different ingredients, if you will, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> you know, Greg Fleet was hugely influential in the, in my style, in my presentation. Like, you know, the way that I would tell stories and present things was very fleety. And Tony, like in the way that I would try to write jokes, I thought Tony Martin was the best joke writer. So like I would I would try to construct jokes a bit more like Tony. And then there, I think like Anthony Anthony Morgan was hugely influential to me. I mean, it, you know, I used to say this and I, I, I have stopped saying it. I'll say it and explain why I stopped saying it, right? <laughs> I used to say that um, five out of the top – 10 comedy gigs I've ever seen of Anthony Morgan and nine out of the 10 worst comedy gigs I've seen of Anthony Morgan. That is yeah. completely untrue and unfair. The, what, the reason I used to say it like that was just to show that that was what Anthony was. He would swing for the fences every time and it didn't, you know, sometimes that would mean that it would just be terrible, go nowhere. But yeah. the truth is that even the worst Anthony Morgan gig is, you know, far superior to like, you know, do you know what I mean? Like, so it's, yeah, it, you yeah. know, what, but the point being that when he was at his best, his free, in the moment, free flowing best, like, I don't think that I've ever seen, like, even Connolly, I don't know if he was as good as Anthony Morgan when Anthony was, you know, right in that absolute sweet yeah. spot swinging for the fences. And, and then there was like, you know, Judith, like, I guess, most of the joke writing came from Judith and Tony and most of the performance stuff came from Fleety and Anthony. And then you kind of mixed all that together and then I guess, well, and then the the structure that still is in my work to, today of making unrelated things actually all fit together, um, 
which is like, you know, that's the one real through line to all my work is that, you know, in like that I love to tell stories that seem unrelated and then, you know, kind of tie them up all together in a neat bow that, you know, like I like that idea that the audience thinks I don't know what I'm doing and then at the last moment they're kind of, ah, oh, ah, he's, he knew what he's doing the whole time. And that he's ca- done it again. And that's Connolly, right? That's Yeah. Yeah, that's absolutely 100% Billy Connolly. Like that was the magic trick that first amazed me as a 17-year-old was the idea that it felt like he had no idea where it was all going and then he was able to weave it all together thematically and with callbacks and with like, you know, wrapping, th- you know, that that to me was the greatest magic trick of all and it's the one that I wanted to learn how to do and it's the one that I cannot stop doing because it's my favourite thing to do. Do you remember the first time that you found your voice? Do you remember the first time going, this is Ando? Oh, I only call you Ando because I love it when you refer to yourself in the book as Ando. <laughs> My favourite um, joke in the book, Sam, is because um, this is true. Like uh, th- there is a truth to it. Like like all good jokes, they all start with the truth, which is if I need to motivate myself to do something, I'll be, I will say out loud, come on, Ando, make that cover tea. Or come on, Ando, go and yeah. walk the dog, right? But the joke yeah. I love in the book is, uh, come on, Ando, as opposed to come on, Ando, which is a show that I pitched to the ABC that nearly <laughs> got me banned for life. Um, uh, so um, oh, how to answer that question? Um, this will sound like a weird answer, but I think I can say it to you in a way that you will understand what I mean, I think, in a way that a lot of people that I would say this to would think that I am being falsely humble or... I think that we're logical. The show that I just did is probably the first time that I have 100% fully been in control of my own voice. I think that really it's taken me 20... 27 years and a fucking pandemic in the middle to finally get to what I've been working to for a quarter of a century. Like I feel like that show, it was 100% me. You know, every single joke, every single moment, every single perspective is is me and my perspective and gives you a picture of who – I am, you know, a person who likes people but can really get pissed off by their ideas somehow, yeah, sometimes, you know, and and all of that is in that show, you know, the person who loves community but also sees the, you know, drawbacks and faults of community and, and the journey of that show, you know, is – and so, I mean, there's been breakthrough times, you know, seven years in, 14 years in, like, you know, there's been moments where I can clearly tell – that I've got closer to it, that, you know, I've gone up a gear. You know, Will Eagle was you know, was close, you know, and that, that was, what, five years ago or something now. So I feel like that was pretty close, but it wasn't fully there still. Like I think if I was going to do Will Eagle again now, I still – the funny thing about Will Eagle is – because that's the story about me, for people that don't know the story about me being arrested on the way to Wagga Wagga. Um, I pulled some punches – I was overly unfair on me in that situation for comedic purposes, right? 
because I didn't want to go the other way. I didn't want to – like something really bad was done to me in a general sense. Most of what happened that day wasn't my fault and the show makes it feel like it was more my fault because I felt like that was a better comedic space to blame myself more than to blame others. So it meant that it was still a bit of a lie. Like it was a lie for good reasons, like good comedic reasons. Like I think that was the way to tell that story. But, but you know, it still is me pretending around some things, making them more my fault when they actually weren't my fault, you know. Yeah. And yeah. Um, so it doesn't feel as like absolutely honest in the way that Willogical feels like absolutely, you know. Like and the funny thing is Willogical like is not all – true in the strictest sense of like could you find the people and make a documentary about them because you couldn't because often when I talk about someone they're three people they're a little Voltron of you know three little stories that I've combined it they're all true stories but you know I've changed the 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 detail of the person who said it or whatever to separate the person from the the idea it's why in the book unless a name specifically has to be there like Julia Gillard or something like that for you to understand the story there are no names I don't name the people in the stories because often they actually aren't one specific person. They might be a combination of a few people who said something to me that I've kind of combined together so that the person can't be identified. So, um, but it's true. Like, do you know what I mean? Like there's a real truth. Like everything in it is true. The details might have been changed, but the whereas like in Willogical, it was almost, sorry, in Willegal, it was almost the opposite, which was, all the details needed to be true because it, like, it was a real-life thing that people could verify. But some of the truths, like I actually obscured for comedic reasons. So they're different shows a bit in that regard. Like one was more true that you could go and identify all the people in it because it needed to be. It was a publicly available that people could fact-check it. But I obscured yeah. some of the, the real truth of it, whereas like were logical – I obscured some of the documentary sense of who said what and where and I've messed with the timeline a little and those sort of things. But every single thing in it is is absolutely true and true to me and true to my perspective. Was that a similar thing, the way you kind of have to change things a little bit just to serve sort of comedic value? Was that hard writing a book where you're kind of like thinking this has to be 100% what happened? Was it hard to start writing a book whereas you know you're usually writing a stand-up show was it hard to kind of pinpoint exactly what happened without with, with still making it funny i didn't write a book i wrote an eight-hour stand-up show yeah 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 yeah. like i mean a lot of it is in the stand-up show that's kind of the point of the book the book starts with stand-up going away in april 2020 and it ends with me going back well like it actually Ends with me trying to go back to the Melbourne Comedy Festival in 2022 and then getting delayed and then eventually making it back. That is essentially the very simple story of the show is the thing that was most important to me going away and the thing that was most important to me coming back. The book is the material, some of which that I got to do on stage, some of which I only got to do on stage a couple of times because of the the pandemic happening, um, some of which ended up being the show that I'm talking about. Like if you if you see Well Logical, you can see not only that material in the book, but how that material was formed and shaped and the journey to get to that material. That's what I wanted it to be. But it's really just eight hours of like I wrote it as stand-up. It's all written as stand-up and it's all stuff that some of it I won't ever do as stand-up. Like the billionaires going to space and all my stuff around the billionaires and all that sort of stuff. I wrote to be stand-up. It I yeah. just 
never got an opportunity to do it as stand-up and it ended up being in the book. But it wasn't written specifically for the book. It was written to be stand-up. I just never got to do it as stand-up. One of my favourite parts of the book is the story about when you had to film your own stand special, Mm. um, which, you know, which is such a funny, it's such a funny thing to read, but it was in that moment I, I started to remember when people started to have to do everything for themselves and pivot to do, you know, I guess my question is kind of when you felt like you were doing that, was there a moment in in there where you kind of thought, if this is the new (laughs) world of stand-up, I'm going to find this really tricky to pivot this and and, and make this a full-time thing now? Oh, I didn't want to even do that is the honest truth. Like, yeah. Um, I did it because part of them being able to sell it to Stan was attaching some big names to it. So I hosted my episode. There was three episodes and each of them had like a higher profile host um, who just basically linked everything together and then, you know, had a a spot of their own. And part of them being able to sell it to Stan was having like some high profile people attached to it. And I was basically convinced to do it, you know, on behalf of – other people, which I was, yeah. you know, more than happy to do. That is a compelling reason for me to to do something like that and I'm glad that it could happen. But no, I mean, I, I describe in excruciating detail how difficult it was for me to, you know, to do that. And really the reason I include that in the book is because a lot of the book is about that relationship with the audience, you know, mm. the idea of, you know, the audience going away and one of the, like, insights that I had about what it is that I like about stand-up as opposed to, you know, writing a book or, you know, even presenting on TV or radio or these sort of things is the insight, the unlocking in my mind about what the show actually is. So as comedians, if, if we say, how was your show tonight? And we say, oh, it was great or oh, it was tough tonight. What we're talking about is not ah, it was great tonight, I nailed every word, I, all my impressions were perfect, like my timing was exquisite. No, what we're saying is my relationship with the audience, like my response and how I dealt with that response was great tonight. It was tough tonight, what do I mean by that? It was a tough tough crowd is really what I mean, right? Yeah. So therefore, I'm not actually talking about the show at all, am I? So the show exists regardless right? The show exists, like the show, even though comedy went away, like I can write down the show, it's in a file in my computer, right? Like, you know, those 8,000 words didn't magically disappear when the band, the audience went away and then suddenly like a back to the future moment, the words started to fade away as well. <laughs> the show as a tangible thing exists, but to me it doesn't exist unless I can put it in front of an audience. Therefore, the show the audience is what I'm trying to play and the show is just the bow or the pick or the instrument that I use to play the audience. What my job is, is playing an audience and that's what I enjoy. I love being in front of an audience and getting to communicate with them in that way that Billy Connolly was communicating with that audience, you know, when I was 17 years old. I like to play the audience and so I thought that that story, that one gig I did without the audience was really important to to show that I tried it and that I hated it (laughs) and that it was horrible and it wasn't for me. And then that is partly, you know, thematically what what the book is about is that idea of, you know, when the audience goes away and then my, 
my you know the the journey to the audiences you know coming back and 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 how that changed me and and it changed my relationship with the audience and it absolutely helped me unlock that's why i say you know well logical is the show where i found my voice is because i feel like it is you know i really do feel yeah. like it's funny um steve bennett who uh, comedy fans will know he's the uh, reviewer for chortle which is sort of your your most famous comedy that's Chortle, the website that I would have run as a journalist if that if comedy had been big enough when I was at university. <laughs> the parallel universe yeah, of your life. Totally. <laughs> and he's seen my show, you know, every year probably for the last 15 years and he thought that, you know, last year's was the best one and he said maybe it was because I'd had two years off instead of doing one every year to, you know, to think about it. And I, I that may be part of it, but I think the bigger reason is that I'd had time to think about why I was doing it in the first place and what it is that I actually do and and what I wanted to achieve with the show, you know, like my perspective yeah. on that had changed and it, uh, and unlocked something I think that hopefully doesn't just lead to a better show last this year but hopefully leads also to a better show, you know, next year as well. Yeah. Uh, Will, I don't want to keep you forever because you're a very busy person and this um this, this book is – Amazing! I I love reading. I I read it all this week, and I I, th- I got it on the day that it came out. I went and got it and started reading it right away, and just loved it. I've got for this podcast. Uh, I've written down some questions because yes. I thought it might be easier if I actually write down some questions, so I know what I'm actually talking about when I talk to a guest. And so the questions start with trying to figure out a little bit more about what nature versus nurture really is, and. I, I want to ask this question first. What what traits in people do you find the most admirable? Um, I think um, self-awareness or self-reflection, I think. Yep. Um, we all make mistakes constantly. Like life is just guessing and we're all guessing and none of us know what the meaning of it is and um, you know, people, I, I, people who are, you know, have a capacity for self-reflection and self-awareness, I find, you know, are the people that I like to surround myself with. I say this to, you know, comedians, but people I work with all the time is that idea of, I don't care if you've got something wrong. It's, you know, often, uh, so we have, um, I'll give you just a practical example. We do this thing, which we call the fourth chair on QE, which means that during the day when we're doing our rehearsals, we invite a bunch of newer comedians who don't have that sort of panel experience. People who aren't ready to do the show yet, but, you know, we'd like to get into TV studio, see how it all works, get the opportunity to show their wares. And I always, you know, if they would like after they do that panel, I will have a follow-up conversation with them about what they did well and what they didn't do well. And... I always ask them first what what how they thought it went and the ones that can accurately tell me I don't care if they didn't nail it that's not the point of it the point of it isn't for them to come in and nail it if they haven't nailed it if they have an awareness of what they did well and what they did wrong that's all you need right because we can work yeah. with that if you get what didn't work, we can work on making it work next time. But if you don't understand what didn't work, if you don't have a sense that it didn't work at all, if you think you did nail it when you didn't, then I don't know where to start with that. But if you come in and go, here's what I think I did wrong or my sense is that this didn't work, yeah, then, then, then we can have a great conversation about how next time 
um, you can do it better. I mean, there's been practical examples of that on the show. I won't, you know, dob these people in by name for the sake of, you know, they're, they're, but there was a person who I like who came in, did a fine job, but didn't absolutely nail it. We had a conversation. They came back, adjusted to the notes that I had given them, absolutely nailed it, ended up doing the show. So, like, literally that's as, you know, simple an explanation of, like, you know, how self-awareness and, and you know, that, that, that capacity for self-improvement, that, those things are I – lo- I love those in people because none of us – we all fuck up shit all the time, right? But just that yeah. idea of being able to be aware of what you fucked up and, and be willing to, you know – pursue the path forward out of that I think is important yeah uh, what's your favorite thing about yourself pass I <laughs> don't know <laughs> don't know don't know I don't know and and you know maybe I should know um uh I keep showing up probably that's probably it you're hard working you're very hard working as well What's uh, what's know. something about yourself you'd change? Oh, um, where to start? Um, I I probably keep too much stuff to myself. I probably uh, internalize a lot of my own struggles um, because, you know, because in, in lots of ways my life is like I'm very grateful for the opportunities I've had in my life and the success that I've had in my life and these sort of things. So um, I've probably been guilty of when things are tough for me, um, not not sharing that with people, like particularly people who are close to me thinking I am a bit of a I'll sort this out myself or I'll get this through through this and I think that that's probably not that's not just unfair on me but it's actually unfair on the the people who are close to you who would like to be able to help you when things are tough and you know can't do that if they don't know you know what's going on so i think that probably did the pandemic make you closer to people or did it make you isolate even more when you're already isolated yeah isolate even more and yeah. like and definitely has continued to do so like COVID is yeah. definitely like you know the more you know that COVID is out in the community and people aren't like I mean you know for me I feel such a huge personal responsibility to all the people who work for me because I've asked them to you know you know take a job with me and and you know you know and the success of that job means that they get to you know feed their family and pay their mortgage and these sort of things that I am super paranoid about the risks I put myself under that would then affect everybody else so. No, I am yeah very solitary, very solitary, and much more so than I was previous to the pandemic. So yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, when are you at your happiest? Um. Oh, I mean, it's been nice to be back doing shows. Like that's yeah. definitely and and particularly because. Pre-pandemic, you know, I, I was having a lot of conversations about the fact that it wasn't really bringing me particular happiness, like, you know, doing shows. So that that recently it's definitely been, you know, back doing shows. That has been part of it. But I don't know. Like I'm, I'm actually quite happy probably – the thing that brings me the most ha- – happy is probably not the right word, but 
the thing that brings me the most contentment, I don't know, like, you know, I told you before about these conversations I have with these young comedians or, you know, these workshops we're doing with them in the afternoon. I find that incredibly satisfying. Like, I really do. Like, I, I like working with, you know, new people. I like people setting out on their journey and their adventure. And it's not just that it's, you know, a selfless thing that I like to provide an opportunity for other people, but it's actually it reconnects me with the part of me that was so excited when I was starting out on my journey. You know, it re-energizes you, yeah. you know, reminds you of of that and how exciting it is when you first get those opportunities and how scary and like and and you know that maybe I could help you know somebody along their path and you know my attitude is very much like you know Tom Cashman did our show twice last year he didn't have an agent now we can't even get Tom Cashman for the show because he's so busy you know what I mean like and again I don't feel any resentment I, I love that like you know what I mean I love if that was the case for everyone who came through our process and by the way I'm also not claiming that it's because of us I'm just saying that um I love that. You know, to me that's that that is really really satisfying and and it you know it does it does make me happy and it, it, I think it you know probably shows me a path forward as well which is you know it's nice to see it's nice to know that you're genuinely excited for other people and you know for them getting opportunities and it probably also gives you an opportunity to go well maybe that's something that when I, you know, step back from being the person in front of things, maybe there's a role for me behind the scenes helping other people facilitate their, you know, their dreams and ambitions. The director. You're going to go back to VCA. Yeah, fuck you, VCA. Fucking motherfuckers. I'm going to buy the Adelaide Advertiser and I'm going to go back to VCA and go, like Julia Roberts in Pretty Woman. <laughs> when are you at your lowest? Oh, uh, when, uh, there's, there's a lot of times, but they're not, they're not around things that I'm willing to share publicly. There, there are some things in your life that need to be, you know, private, um, yeah. some for yourself. I think it's good to keep some of your own stuff for yourself, but also, because often the worst moments of your life involve other people. Um, I'll give you yeah. a I'll give you a practical example that doesn't divulge too much information. The book is dedicated to Irene and Winnie. Um, Irene was my grandmother who died, who grew up literally on the same property as us. You know, was there all my life, and um, I did not get to see towards her death because of the you know the border restrictions around COVID and. Um, Winnie, uh, was our dog who died really prematurely. And, um, I'm sure the book publishers would have loved a chapter on either of those things, you know, the chapter that has everyone at home crying and, you know, like, and I know that technically I could have written them, but that's not for the public. They're just really sad things that happen in those times that, uh, are not for to share with other people. They're just to be sad for for myself and the other people who you know shared in those sad moments. They're not they're not to be shared and not to be profited off. And and to be honest, I wanted the book to be funny, and they're not things that I can find the humor in or wanted to find the humor in. So um, yeah, the sad moments are the moments that that people don't get to hear about. Probably if you're hearing about it, 
then at the end of the day, I'm probably not that sad about it. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, who do you choose to surround yourself with now and has that changed over time? Uh, kind of people. I mean, it probably has changed a little bit over time, but not that much. Um, yeah. I tend to work with the same people a lot. You know, I'm pretty loyal. Um, I pick and stick, you know. And, uh, you know, I've been working with the same people, you know, my television team, you know, the QE team are essentially pretty much the Gruen team, you know, like there's not much differences behind the scenes. You know, I find people that I like to work with and they come and work with me on all the things that I work on. Um, You know, you can tell from my extended podcast world that like it can be quite a big community, but it tends to be a community. You know, there is definitely, you can, you can see you know, who they are and who I like to work with and what sort of people I like to work with. It's it's pretty apparent, um, uh, you know, in my world. There's a lot of documentary evidence of the sort of people that I like to work with. Um, I like to work with smart people, you know. I like to work with smart people who want to do interesting things. That's generally who I like to surround myself with. And then I like to work with people that I can have faith in. I don't want to be one of those yeah. bosses that... Um, tells people what to do. I want to be one of those people who empowers people to share my vision and to then bring something of their own to it that I couldn't have thought of or imagined, you know. That's that's really what I like to do. I like to pick smart people and then hopefully empower them to to grow and be confident and bring something to the table. What drives you every day now? What what keeps you going? And do you still kind of have really big ambitions? I mean, I ambitions is a funny word, isn't it? Because I don't know even what that means anymore. Like, you know, like what is ambitions? Like what does that mean? Like I, I, I just want to be able to continue to do I, – I think we might have spoken about this before, but – you know, I don't like this. Might surprise people. So I, I, I created. You know, I'm the EP. I created. Yeah, you know, question everything. I've not seen an episode of it this season. I hear it's going well, um, <laughs> but I, my job's done on a Tuesday night. On a Tuesday night, we record the show, and I go in and do what we call the paper edit, which is like you know we do a little like sort of breakdown of what we think the show will look like, and then I leave it in the hands of the editors, and. It goes to air on a Wednesday night, but by Wednesday night, I've already started thinking about next week. Um, yeah, I won't watch my sta- like we recorded the logical this year. I won't watch it back. I um, won't sit down and read the book. I don't even get any particular pride in having written a book. I hope the book goes well enough that they let me write another book if I want to write another book. I hope the TV show goes well enough that they let me keep making more of it. Like that's 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 my ambition. I hope the stand-up show is good enough that people come and see me do stand-up again next year when I want to do my stand-up show. That's my ambition is to be able to keep doing it, I guess. That's that's the only ambition I have because all the other stuff seems ridiculous. Like I don't really know what else – I mean I've done – I mean and I don't mean this in a any other way than – but I've done everything. Like do you know what I mean? Like I've hosted TV shows. I've won awards. I've – done stand-up specials, I've toured the world doing stand-up, I've written books, I've done radio. Like, I mean, what the – I've got podcasts. I mean, what the fuck is there to do? Like, I mean, there's that and more. I don't want to be in movies. I don't want to be invited to red carpets. Like, none of that stuff is stuff that I find interesting. 
Um, you know, I've met celebrities. I've had access to doing those sort of things and I've chosen not to do them. So my ambition is to hopefully do things well enough that I get to keep doing them. And I guess that's the only ambition I really have and that's the only drive that I really have is just like I have all these ideas for things that I would like to do and I would like to be able to do them. And, and you know, doing one thing well gives you the capacity and opportunity to to do another thing. So I guess that's, that is an ambition. Like it's definitely an ambition and I'm definitely driven and, you know, all those sort of things. Like I think that I still haven't done my best work. I absolutely am sure of that. Like I still think there's more in me. Like Billy Connolly was my, when I went and saw Billy Connolly when I was 17 years old, he was the age I am now. So he still had another 20 years of being one of the best comedians in the entire world to come after that. And I hope that maybe, you know, I still got another 20 years of, growing what I do if logical was the best thing I've done so far I want to look back in 20 years and go that was just the start of you know how good things got after that that would be my ambition but it's really only that to try to unlock more and more of who I am and and what I can do and hopefully do it well enough that people come and keep supporting it yeah our final final question will uh after everything we've talked about today, what what do you think had the greatest influence on who you are today? Is there someone that has had the greatest influence on you or a moment that you could describe that kind of made you who you are? I mean, there's more than one and that's the truth. Like it, it's never going to be just one. But, you know, it's mum taking me to Billy Connolly at 17. It's Billy Connolly on that yeah. stage unlocking something in my mind, that possibility of what I what I could be, you know, and that um, it's Ted Robinson who produced the big gig who ended up, you know, producing Good Newsweek, which is the first TV show that got me going and, you know, led to the Triple J job. It's Ted Robinson who produced The Glass House, you know. It's Andrew Denton who I was watching, you know, on The Money or the Gun and Theatre Sports who ended up being, you know, the co-creator of Gruen, which is a show that I've, you know, now we're about to go into our 15th year of doing. So, like, and they're just some off the top of my head you know it's Fleety and Anthony yeah. Morgan and Judith and Tony Martin and you know all these people who taught me how to do something that I as a kid from a dairy farm had no fucking idea how to do so um you know it's all those people and it's more than those people as well you know but um but yeah there's not one but there's a lot and I owe yeah all of it to each and every one of them uh, Will Anderson, thank you so much for joining me on the podcast. I am not fine. Thanks is everywhere you find book, and you've done an audio book as well. There is an audio book. I've never listened to an audio book, Sam, and I, <laughs> um, I can't even imagine wanting to listen to an audio book. I've got to say, and I remember <laughs> in the lead up to having to record the audio book that I was like, I'm going to listen to some audio books to see like what they're like, you know, so that I have an idea of what yep. to do when I go in. And then I was just so busy doing other things that it got closer and closer and closer and I still hadn't listened to an audio book. And I was like, I, I reckon I only had a week to go and I was like, okay, I'm going to listen to an audio book. And then I realized, hang on, well, it's ridiculous just to listen to one because then you're going to be overly influenced by that one you've listened to. And every other audio book might be completely different. And so <laughs> yeah. I went, I, I've recorded an audio book having never – the only audio book I've ever listened to is the one I read out loud, which is my book. Um <laughs> I, it, I, three days it, it, t- it took. It took three yeah, days of yeah. recording. Um, 
as someone who doesn't consider themselves to be an actor, it was a very weird experience because you do have to kind of read the book, you know, line by line uh, in a way yeah. that sometimes doesn't feel particularly natural to a stand-up. But, uh, yeah, no, it's available in audiobook form. But I recommend you buy it like an old-fashioned book because James Fosdyke has done an incredible cover. And uh, I know they say you shouldn't judge a book by its cover, but James Fosdyke's cover is amazing. And it's got a quote from Sean McAuliffe. So what the fuck else do you want from a cover of a book, honestly? (laughs) Tick, tick, tick. (laughs) Will Anderson, thank you so much for joining me on Nature or Nurture. Thank you, Sammy. Thank you for listening to Nature or Nurture for this week. My name is Sammy Peterson and you can follow me, SamPeterson91, on Instagram. I also have a comedy podcast called Confessions. You can find that. The handles are Confessions, the podcast on Instagram, TikTok and Facebook. You can also just search it on your regular podcast apps. Please do rate this podcast Uh, I would love that. It helps get the podcast out there to so many people. Thank you to the wonderful Michelle Laurie and Matthew Tankard. They're, They're great producers and I couldn't do this without them. Please do share this podcast around. I'd love to get it out there to as many people as possible. So please do share it with a friend and tell the person that you just heard on this podcast that you really enjoyed hearing their chat. Thank you so much. Hope you have a good week and I will talk to you very, very soon. Goodbye. 